0: It's a lonely business being a prophet. To stand before your friends, neighbors, legal magistrates, governing officials, influential strangers, and religious leaders with a message you know will absolutely infuriate them presents a serious dilemma. Now, before we get into the specifics of this dilemma, I need to give you a little background. Now, I know human nature well enough to know some of you enjoy history, and some of you, I suspect, your eyes will glaze over as I'm telling you what I'm about to tell you. But I think this is necessary background, so try to pay attention. If you can't, I'll tell you when to plug back in, okay? Jeremiah lived in a period of extreme turbulence in the political sense. The nation ruled by King David and his son King Solomon had divided after King Solomon's death into the northern kingdom called Israel, and the southern kingdom called Judah. The empire of Assyria rose and crested, during which time the northern kingdom, Israel, was conquered by them and fell in 722 B.C. Its people were taken away and resettled In other parts of the Assyrian Empire and people from other parts of the Empire were brought into the area vacated by those people and resettled in the nation Israel. These foreigners who came in and settled brought with them their own religions, their own customs as you can imagine, And these folks came to be called Samaritans and the Jews of Judah, the southern kingdom, had little use for them because they were foreigners from other parts of the Assyrian Empire settled in Israel. You with me? Okay. Now, we're not talking about the Samaritans. I just wanted you to know that. But here's where we plug in. Because they brought their own gods, they were hated by the Jews of Judah, and as the Assyrian influence declined, the Babylonian empire rose in influence and in military might so that by 614, about the time Jeremiah became an adult, about 614 the Babylonians conquered the Assyrians and the Assyrians as an empire are not heard from anymore in history. While some would say that the nation of Judah was simply the victim of geopolitical forces they could not control, Jeremiah saw the threat to Judah's existence as God's judgment for their unfaithfulness. This then is the setting of Jeremiah's dilemma we spoke of a moment ago. Okay, time to plug back in. You with me? So Jeremiah's dilemma was this. Do you speak the truth as you understand it, knowing you will become, in the eyes of your contemporaries, a persona non grata, or worse, a traitor to your country? Or do you convince yourself that maybe I'm wrong? Maybe I'm overreacting, and do you decide to say nothing so as not to risk offending anyone? Should Jeremiah join the false prophets and say, everything will be fine, thereby ingratiating himself to the powers that be? Or should he act according to what he believes in his heart God is calling him to do and say and proclaim what he believes is the truth? Jeremiah chose to do this and predicted that the nation would fall to the Babylonians. And as you might imagine, this was not a very popular sermon. When he proclaimed this, people took offense. In fact, Jeremiah was sentenced to be executed and very nearly came to be so. He was placed in stocks at the Benjamin gate of the temple. He was lowered into the king's son's cistern that all the water had leaked out but left mud this deep. And Jeremiah was lowered into the mud and left there to die and it was only through his faithful associate, Baruch, who managed to surreptitiously remove him from his predicament. So what I'm saying is Jeremiah's message, though he believed it was what God was calling him to say, was not popular with the people. It's not what they wanted to hear. And it's not what the other prophets were saying. Jeremiah was lonely. So Jeremiah chose to present his message as though it were a courtroom setting. Jeremiah's prediction came to pass in 586 or 587 B.C. When the Babylonians did conquer Jerusalem and its people, many of them, the cream of the crop, so to speak, were carried off to Babylon. As you can imagine, in the years leading up to this tragedy, Jeremiah was not regarded as a person anyone wanted to have anything to do with. So in this courtroom scenario he presented, God addresses his people. And what God has done for the people is beyond dispute. He has called them into being. He established them as his chosen people, as the people through whom he would fulfill his promise to bless the world. He protected Preserved and prospered them. He provided a homeland for them. He created a covenant or an agreement with them. He would be their God and they would be his people. But this covenant or this agreement was not a contract, it was not an agreement between equals. This kind of covenant is called a suzerainty treaty. It's given between a king and his subjects or his vassals. Through Jeremiah, God charges that the people have neglected and rejected their part of the covenant. They have not fulfilled their end of the bargain. What have I done to deserve this treatment? God asks. What fault did you find in me? What wrong did your ancestors find? That they pursued worthless things and became worthless themselves. That's strong language to our ears, isn't it? That they became worthless. And God is speaking in terms of of his plan. The plan to bless the world through the Messiah who would come through these people. But their unfaithfulness, their straying from God, their pursuing false gods, made it impossible for God to fulfill what he had planned and in that way they were worthless to him. Pursuing false gods of material or intellectual idolatry as they were doing made them no longer fit or faithful to the Lord God and they disqualified themselves from the remarkable privilege of being the people through whom Christ would come if they continued in their unfaithfulness. How could God through them prepare eventually to bless the world through his son Jesus? Now, Jeremiah could not have known the full scope of God's pain at being abandoned and rejected. He could not have known the details of Christ's coming, but he knew enough to know that God's pain at being abandoned and rejected was enormous, and he knew enough to pronounce severe judgment on the people and for that Jeremiah himself was abandoned and rejected by his contemporaries Jeremiah sets forth the charges though God has remained faithful the people have not go to the countries both far and near God says go to Kittim Go to Cyprus and see if anything so preposterous has ever occurred as God's people abandoning him has ever been heard of. But these charges are not made by an angry ruler determined to crush the rebellious subjects. No, these are the painful expressions of a loving God who has been betrayed by those he had chosen as his own. In distress, he describes his loss. It is inconceivable to him. The people have committed two atrocities, he says. They have abandoned him and they have sought substitutes unbelievably unsatisfactory substitutes for him. This would be like living in a desert and abandoning the clear, cold, pure waters of a gushing spring to drink the water from cisterns you have hewn out of the rock yourself. Cisterns that have cracked and leaked the water out and these cracks allowed nastiness to seep in. Who would choose to drink from such a thing? God can't imagine it. Their craziness is hard to fathom. How nuts would they have to be to do such a thing? Now, aside from following Christ and getting married to each other, one of the best decisions my parents ever made was to drill a well. When I was a toddler, they bought property and built a small house in the Missouri countryside south of St. Louis. My dad, dug and cemented a cistern, complete with a sand filter to catch rainwater. I can't imagine the number of hours he spent digging and pouring concrete, but somehow during the process, he lost his taste for cistern water. And I've been very glad he did. He chose instead to transport our drinking water from a distant spring. After a few years of this, my parents decided to drill a well that produced an abundance of cold, clear, sweet water. And although the cistern continued to collect water through the sand filter he created, It was never used for anything. And I couldn't possibly imagine choosing to drink the stagnant water from it rather than the pure water from the well. God couldn't imagine such a thing either. We, God's people in our day, we who are followers of Christ, God's Son. We are covenant, covenant people too. Like those ancient Hebrews, ours is a suzerainty treaty, an agreement not between equals but between the Creator God who chooses through our faith in Christ to adopt us as his children, as inconceivable As that sounds, it's true. Not counting our sins against us, the scripture says, he makes us his very own daughters and sons through Christ. The Bible says Christ has cleansed us from all our sins. This, is simply grace it is unbelievable no wonder they call it amazing